Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me today Dr. Jerry Stonemetz, who is the Director of Perioperative Services here at Johns Hopkins Hospital and also an anesthesiologist by training. He's had a fascinating career and is going to talk to us about something that he gives a really just great and super popular talk to our residents about, which is kind of the business side of anesthesiology, something that he has a lot of experience in. Jerry, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. So why don't we start with kind of talking about billing. It's something that uh, not a lot of people know much about, at least certainly not as residents, um, but something that is a big part of what we do. So tell us a little about about that. What role does billing play in anesthesiology? Sure. I think it's it's important as a background, though, to also explain why I have an interest in it. Yeah, please. Um, You know, I finished my residency program. I wasn't completely sure what I want to do. I decided to try private practice. I went into private practice and spent 18 years essentially doing my own cases, but I became the president of our group and was in charge of our billing. And in private practice, it is critical that you focus very heavily on capturing as much billing as possible and not leave dollars on the table. I found that in an academic environment, there's probably less focus on that. Um, Physicians are more employed, uh, more salaried, and so the, the front line rank and file physician generally doesn't have much knowledge of the billing basics. So we built this this lecture to kind of give residents some background into it because a lot of our residents decide they just, they want to go into private practice and this prepares them really for that side of the world. That sounds great. Really important <laughs> stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I think you're exactly right that we tend to, in academic medicine, prepare people for academic medicine, which is not where everyone's going to go. Correct. Uh, so this kind of stuff is really useful. All right. So so what about billing? So, you know, every time you have an operation, there's a patient gets at least three bills. And so there's a surgeon's fee, there's a anesthesia fee, and then there's a facility fee. So we're going to talk about the anesthesia fee, which is quite unique, and it has a very complex formula. It's the most complex formula of professional fee uh, capture of any specialty, and we'll go into some of the details behind it. Um, I'm not going to talk about some of the subspecialty areas like OB, critical care, pain management. Uh, we just I just want to focus on the billing that occurs in the operating room. Sounds good. Now, <clears throat> the, um, each surgical procedure has a certain value. If you're a surgeon and you're doing... Uh, knee arthroscopies, you essentially charge the same for every knee arthroscopy. Now, you charge more probably for an ACL reconstruction, but you, you basically charge the same every time you do it. Anesthesia is a time-based billing. So there's a, there's a time component uh, in how we capture or how we generate our fees. 
there's been a lot of criticism as an industry about keeping the time-based element, and some would argue that it has led to our inability to effectively negotiate with Medicare and RVU-based billings. However, most of us believe that if you have if you have that same knee arthroscopy and it takes 30 minutes or it takes two hours, we want to charge a little bit differently since it's, we do have a time element involved. If you look at um, if you look at our surgical procedures, there's essentially CPT codes, <clears throat> and those CPT codes are owned by the AMA. In fact, they're copyrighted by the AMA. Now, if you're a new surgeon and you decide you want to start a new surgical procedure, for example, transoral thyroidectomy. Um, I'm not sure why we do that, but <laughs> we're doing them. Um, you would then petition the AMA and say, I have this new surgical procedure, and that, and they would essentially, if they vetted it and thought it was appropriate, they would issue a, a five-digit code for that surgical CPT code. Now, there are anesthesia CPT codes, and it's kind of a one-to-many correlation. So there's a lot more surgical CPT codes than there are anesthesia codes. For example, we have 19 surgical CPT codes for knee arthroscopy. Diagnostic, medial meniscectomy, lateral meniscectomy, medial and lateral meniscectomy. We only have two anesthesia codes. So it's knee arthroscopy and then it's ACL reconstruction under arthroscopy. And the reason we have two anesthesia codes is that in general, most arthroscopies are fairly short procedures, but an, but an arth, uh, arthroscopic meniscectomy can take two to three hours. Because of the different time frame, we want to look at outcomes differently, so we have it set up as two codes. And, Jerry, CPT stands for Current Procedural Terminology? That's there? correct. Okay. That's correct. <clears throat> now, we assign base units to those CPT codes, and our formula has base units plus time units plus any special circumstances or procedures, for example, a post-op pain epidural block or uh, intra, like an A-line placement. We add the base units plus the time units, any of these qualifying circumstances, and we get something called total units. We then calculate our fee by multiplying those total units times a conversion factor. And each group has to define their conversion factor uniquely. We can't get together and say, well, what are you charging across town? That would be considered collusion. <clears throat> However, no matter what we charge, typically the insurance companies are going to say, well, our usual and customary is X. So it's, it, as we get into this, you'll see that it's not really as important as what we charge compared to how we actually generate our, our revenue from the bill. So the base uh, units are basically saying, for a given procedure, this is how much you start with. And Correct. then for however long it takes, you get a little more based on the time. If it takes longer, you get a little more. And then if you do some procedures, an A-line or something like that, you get a little more. Correct. Now, the, the base units, are, are comp- they do go up in scale based on the complexity of the surgery. And they do include the pre-op preparation and setup time for your procedure. And they ranged in general from three units is the most, is the minor, most minor. And that's for things like breast biopsy, cystos, something fairly simple, skin lesions, up to a total of 25 units for bypass off pump. And so it, it you know, for example, a lap coli is worth seven, a laminectomy might be eight to 10. And so again, depending on um, the complexity of the surgical procedure, the base units go up. Now time units, they actually start when we, by, uh, when we start preparing the patient for anesthesia. 
And we're going to briefly touch on a compliance program and how that's important because you could be audited by Medicare or anybody else to make sure that you're not padding your bill. So some, like in our in this institution, we've created a policy that says that anesthesia start will be when the patient arrives in the operating room if I'm in the operating room with the patient. Like, as you well know here, we tend to escort our patients into the OR. Now, some groups, if, if I was supposed to be in the operating room at 7.30 and I began transporting the patient at 7.25, there are some groups who claim that that's preparing the patient and would actually start their anesthesia time at 7.25, We've taken a conservative approach and said that we, we're going to wait till the patient's physically in the operating room. The exception to that is, let's say, and we, we uh, jokingly refer to them as bag and drag, we go to the ICU, we get a patient who's complex in the ICU and transport that patient to the OR. That may take 20 or 30 minutes, and that's an appropriate time to start your anesthesia start time. Because you're with the patient You're the with time. the patient, and you're essentially, in that case, you're preparing the patient for their anesthetic. Now, Medicare compliance rules says that's fine if you're going to do that, but you should be monitoring the patient and you should be recording that monitoring. So what I advise our providers is that if you do transport these patients, let's capture the time. It's, let's say you same 7.30 start time, but you're going to leave the ICU at 7.15. You start at 7.15 in your record, but you show some monitoring like pulse oximetry or something that says, yes, I'm monitoring this patient. Now, they made some changes in the law um, or in the in the rules so that it used to be that if I wanted to put a block in my patient in the prep area, I would start my anesthesia time then. They've said now that if you put a block or a line in before the induction of anesthesia, you cannot bill for your time because you're billing for the procedure. We're going to bill for that epidural separately. We're going to bill for that A-line separately. However, if you put a patient to sleep and then put your A-line in, we're not going to make you subtract your time. Mm-hmm. So now it's gotten a little more complex, but you know, hypothetically, if I have a patient that I want to put a block in the prep area, we block the patient, but we don't start our anesthesia time then. We wait till we physically take the patient in the OR. Okay. Now, it used to be that we would charge for all minutes, uh, and we would round up like the attorneys do if you go to see an attorney, and they, you know, they tend to round up their times. <clears throat> but now, uh, particularly for Medicare – we have to charge for exact time. So if it's, you know, 180 minutes, it's every, one unit is equal to 15 minutes. So if a case lasts 180 minutes, that's 12 units. If the case lasts for 185 minutes, that's 12.33 units. So okay. it's, it's, uh, it, it's gone down to the decimal point. And it's the, it's the addition of this time piece that actually makes anesthetic so challenging because every single case has a different charge. Now, is the time different based on the case? Yes. Okay. So the base unit is going to be the same. So let's say you go back to our example of the knee arthroscopy. You know, if your case takes exactly 60 minutes, it's going to be the base units, which might be four, plus the time units, which is four, gives you eight total units. Well, if the next case took 48 minutes, it would be less time. If it took 65 minutes, it would be more time. Okay. So it's the time element that changes with every case. Okay. Now, just a word about qualifying circumstances and modifiers. We used to charge for modifiers, like emergencies, we would charge extra. Deliberate hypotension, we would charge. Most of the insurance companies have said, no, we're not going to pay that anymore. So some places still charge for it, but again, they disallow it, so we don't even bother charging for it. What they will pay for, though, are procedural billing. So arterial lines, central lines, regional blocks. If the regional block 
is used in combination with a general anesthetic. If the regional block is your primary anesthetic, you cannot also bill for the regional. It's only if you're using the regional block in addition to a general anesthetic where we're going to use that regional block for post-op pain management. Right. And <clears throat> so we have to define that it's not the primary. We're using general. And we also have to have an attestation that we're going to use this for post-op pain management. And, Jerry, if you let's say you were going to do an epidural, and you could either do it in the pre-op area before you've started clocking time or in the operating room after you've started clocking time. Are those procedures reimbursed the same? They are. The, the procedure, yes. The procedure we get for the epidural is reversed, it's reimbursed the same regardless of where we put it in or, okay. or how we put it in. So the advantage in terms of just pure kind of monetary charging would be to do in the operating room because then you're charging time and procedure. Well, it's not common in the in adults. It's not common that we put an epidural in after we've induced anesthesia. The only time that you don't need to pull the time out is if you've done your anesthetic induction. So, what we see here is commonly we'll put an A line or a central line in after they're asleep. Right. So we bill for that. If we did the block, if we did an A line in the in, before, in the operating room, but before we put the patient to sleep, we're not supposed to start our anesthesia uh, time gotcha. until. So after it's not when you're in the OR; it's after induction. After induction. Okay. Now, I want to talk a little bit about conversion factors because conversion factor is um, really the difference is what defines how much we actually charge. The, the, the rule, the calculation is the same for everyone, but the conversion factor varies from city to city, group to group, across the state. <clears throat> now, it's generally um, – there's, there's something called non-par or non-participation. So if you – sign up with an insurance company, you agree to accept their usual and customary rate. If the group says, no, we don't want to, that's too low for us, we're not going to participate, then they go non-par. You would then balance bill the, the patient for the balance of your bill. The challenge for anesthesiologists is that you don't typically recruit the patients. The patients seek out their surgeon, the surgeon brings them to your hospital, and then they get a balanced bill from you, and they're like, I why didn't you give me somebody who participates in my insurance? So we struggle as a, as a special. We struggle if we go non-par. It, it minimizes our ability to uh, negotiate and influence uh, our fees. Okay. Now, the, the conversion factor is generally um, quite variable. Private insurances pay about the best. Uh, then it starts to drop when you get into managed care organizations and Medicare is about, we often frequently say that's about 10 cents on the dollar. Uh, and in medical assistance, so your patients who are, are Medicaid medical assistance is the absolute lowest pay. And then, of course, we have the patients which are no pay. They don't have insurance. Uh, our medically indigent patients, uh, they typically don't pay anything, and it's a, it's a challenge to even collect from those patients. Now, the American Society of Anesthesia does a survey where they survey anesthesia groups around the country and they published it in their – it used to be the – actually, it's in their monitor, the ASA Monitor magazine. <clears throat> and it, they, they just uh, published their, their survey from 2016. And the mean uh, – the national mean of conversion factor was 71.2 71 – and two cents per unit, which actually is a slight drop from 2015. So it looks like our reimbursements have actually peaked and are now starting to descend down. And is that what people are actually getting, uh, bringing in, or that's just what they're charging that's and what only getting charged. a fraction of that? That's what they're charging. So. No, well, actually, the, no, I'm sorry, you're right. This is what the, this is the mean from what the commercial payers are paying. Okay. 
All right, so a, a Blue Cross or a Netna, the mean based on where you're at is just a little over seventy dollars a unit. Now, um, and then in that survey, there were some conversion factors as high as one hundred eighty dollars a unit, which is staggering to me. It's it's amazing that groups can get it that high. The twenty fifth percentile, the lowest twenty fifth in the percentile, was down to thirty two dollars a unit. Okay. Now realize that Medicare essentially pays twenty one ninety nine per unit, under twenty two dollars a unit. So a big step down from that national mean of seventy one to Medicare. Yeah. And Medicaid is typically less than five dollars a unit. So even uh, yet another factor down. Correct. And when you go to look at groups, when you when you want to analyze um, a group that you're thinking about joining, it's important for you to understand their payer mix. And when we use that term payer mix, we generally are implying that what percent of your patient population is on a government um, a government contract. So Medicare, Medicaid, uh, even military like Champus, or or if you have VA patients, <coughs> those. Uh, government contracts are typically much lower. They're typically below the 20, lower 25th percentile. So if you have more than 30% government payer mix in your population, you're going to work just as hard as the guy who works in a, in a private, good private hospital, but you're going to make less money because you have a higher uh, government payer mix. And so if at any point in this country, and we don't need to get into the politics of this, but if we ever went to a single-payer system, then everything would look like Medicare. And there's a lot of uh, – as we get, we're going to talk briefly a little bit about some trends, but there's a lot of thought that uh, eventually we will go to a single-payer and everyone who's realistic will tell you that it's probably going to be pretty close to Medicare reimbursement rates, which would be a huge, huge impact in anesthesia salaries. Yeah. Okay. So that leads me to uh, a term that I think is really important for you to understand, and that is called the blended unit rate. Now, the way we get a blended unit rate is we take all the revenue that comes in for the group, and we divide it by all the number of units that we build, and that comes up with a blended unit rate. So, for example, you bring in $100,000, you have 2,000 units that generated that, that's $50 per unit. And you should ask your – if you're looking at a private practice group, you should ask them what's their blended unit rate and what's their percent government payer mix. And if they tell you they don't know, it's either they don't want you to know or they're not very smart business people. Mm-hmm. So that, that every, every group should know what their blended unit rate is. And so if you were looking for a job, um, is there a – you know, uh, would you have a recommendation? You'd want a blended unit rate that's about this or above this? Yeah, I, I think that um, – <clears throat> Uh, I'm actually going to get into that in just a minute. I I do think that the blended unit rates, they are going to vary from place to place. And so, you know, a blended unit rate in Manhattan is much different than a blended rate is going to be here in Baltimore. Sure. Um, So I want to go into some details now about um, about how you would calculate your fees and some of the nuances to practice uh, based on on what kind of practice you go into. So, for example, I want to I want to talk about looking at an incisional hernia. It's a pretty common procedure. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's going to take us 120 minutes. So anesthesia start, anesthesia end is 120 minutes. And we're going to put an epidural in for post-op pain management. The base unit for an incisional hernia is six units. That 120 minutes equates to eight time units. And then we can bill eight units for an epidural. Right Now, the way we bill for an epidural is your group decides we're either going to bill units or we're going to bill a flat fee. And they're both about the same. 
Okay. But uh, uh, it wouldn't be unre- it would be reasonable for us to charge about eight units um, for that. And if we were charging seventy dollars a unit, you know that tells you about how much you would bill a flat fee for the epidural. So for this procedure, anesthesia start, anesthesia ends, twenty two units. If I'm billing seventy dollars a unit. That's $1,540 that I'm charging, which is really not bad for a two-hour procedure. Right? Yeah. However, <clears throat> remember what we said at the beginning is that what you charge has very little to do with what you actually make because you're going to have to now have the insurance company reimburse you, and the reimbursement, their conversion factors are all over the place. So let's say you have a good managed care contract. They do pay you $70 a unit, and you make that $1,500 for that case. Here in Maryland, we have a pretty pretty big insurance company called Care First. Care First pays forty dollars a unit, so that instead of fifteen hundred, now it's eight eighty. If it was a Medicare patient, we're down at nineteen dollars a unit, so now instead of fifteen hundred, it's four hundred, mm-hmm. and I would get about forty five dollars if it was Medicare. So the blended unit rate for this procedure at forty dollars a unit. If this group is pretty healthy and we have a blended unit rate of forty dollars a unit, we're looking at about eight hundred and eighty dollars for this case, which is again not bad for a two-hour case, right? Right. <clears throat> but it also means the time that I set up for the case, I pre-op the patient, and then my post-op management. That's all included in that eight hundred eighty dollars, right? <clears throat> now the, um, the so the thing that I want to point out is that. It varies as to whether you're in a practice where you're doing a lot of good insurance or whether you've got a lot of Medicare. So if you have a lot of Medicare, your blended unit rate is going to be lower. The other thing you have to be careful of is you know, we train really good anesthesiologists. They do big cases. They're well-equipped. They come out to a private practice hospital, and they're going to do, I want to do your thoracic and your vascular and the big cases. Well, you know, most of those are all Medicare. Mm-hmm. And I've been in practice now for 10 to 15 years. I've learned how to game the system. I play golf with one of the busiest surgeons, and he requests me for his cases. And I'm doing five lap coleys, and I'm done by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'll make twice as much as you will when you're doing two big aneurysm cases, and you're working a lot harder than I am. So you have to be a little bit careful if you, uh, if you don't watch out that groups are uh, not taking advantage of you. So I want to leave you with some Stone Mets tips. So the first tip is that when you're evaluating a practice, make sure you ask that blended unit rate, right? And be cautious if they can't give that to you. Because it's really critical, and it's really critical to understand how groups distribute their revenue, right? So they're either going to pay you a straight salary or they're going to give you some productivity-based compensation model. And you pretty much have to expect that as a new employee – for one, two, three years, you're most likely going to be on a straight salary, and there's probably not much of any productivity baked into it. But you then need to figure out, once you get past that one or two, three years, what is the productivity model and how is, that fair, how is the revenue distributed? So they, the productivities actually kind of lie between one of two extremes. There's the first extreme, which I refer to as the hunter model, which is essentially you eat what you kill. Uh, your income comes strictly from the revenue in the cases you do. Uh, this has some pros, so you become you become very uh, uh, motivated to do more cases, right? So you incre- you want to increase your efficiency, you want to take on challenging cases, and you want to generate high productivity. The problem with it 
is that it doesn't reimburse anyone for time they spend on administrative duties. So, like, what do you do about quality assurance? What do you do about chief of anesthesia? There, there's a lot of private practice groups where they rotate the chief because it's actually considered to be a detriment to my ability to generate income. Makes sense. The other problem is that, you know, there's no one there to recover or cover, watch anybody in that PACU. The PACU happens to be one of the leading spots of uh, anesthesia malpractice claims. So we drop our patients to PACU, we run, pick up another case. Everybody's in the OR doing cases. There's no one to take care of or rapid respond to that patient in PACU. Right. The, the ultimate extreme of the Hunter model is that you don't use the blended unit rate. They pay you for every case you do. And I can tell you, when I first went to private practice, that was the way we practice. And I can't express how resentful I became when I had to take care of a really long, complex medical assistant patient. And I knew that I spent six hours in the OR and I was going to walk out with $30 that day. So you have to be careful in those models you can easily be taken advantage of by smart, savvy partners who know how to how to pick and choose the right cases. Right, and so when you, so that model is one where you get paid exactly what you bring in, as opposed to one where they say, "Look, our net group average is Correct. this much per unit, so everyone will get that." Yeah, I think a fair hunter model would be one where they pay you the blended unit rate for the cases you do. Right, that means we're distributing the risk of the of the bad insurances across the group. The ones where you only get paid for the actual insurance that was on the patient, it's really fraught with uh, a lot of danger zones. Yeah, it sounds like it. Now, the other extreme is a time-based compensation model where we say, all right, you're going to be here in the operating room for 10 hours, and we're going to pay you X number of dollars for that 10-hour day. Now, that's um, it's easy to incorporate administrative tasks. It's easy to get someone to just cover the, the recovery room. You're not penalized for not doing cases. The downside to it is that there's very little incentive to do add-ons, very little incentive to do cases. And so the time-based model is challenging uh, because you'll you'll get a lot of unhappy surgeons who will complain to the hospital CEO, that group doesn't want to do my cases, no one wants to work after 5 o'clock, and all of that's true, right? If, I, if, if you don't compensate me for working past 5 o'clock, then I'm really not going to do that. Right. So those are the two extremes, and you probably want something that's a bit of a hybrid in between. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd like to point out, just go kind of a side-by-side comparison of the two models to show you why uh, it, why you'd have to be concerned about it. So in this in the scenario that I'm using, I'm going to give you five, dis- five different scenarios of cases you're doing and what you would walk out at the end of the day. So the first scenario is the one that I told you, you know, I'm, I'm – I play golf with a really good surgeon. He's very fast. <clears throat> I'm going to work in his room pretty much every day that I can. He's doing lap coles. It takes him an average of an hour, 60 minutes. We have about a 20-minute turnover time. He does seven cases in a day. I generate 77 total units. <coughs> now, conversely, let's say you get the next pick, and you get, a, but you get a slow surgeon, and that surgeon takes two hours, and so he can only do four cases a day, so you can only get sixty units. Or you're in a room where the surgeon is going to go play golf afternoon, and you only get two cases done, and then you're out, the room's empty, so you only generate thirty units. There's a big difference in the number of units you generate. Right. Now let's say that you're doing hearts. <clears throat> hearts is a pretty good compensation model. You, they're going to take two and a half to two and a half to three hours. We got about a thirty-minute turnover. A busy private practice 
uh, hospital that's doing a lot of hearts can do three hearts in a day. You'll generate 90 units, but you're going to start at 5, and you're not going to get out of there till 6 to 7 o'clock. So right. you're going to generate 90 units. Again, it's going to be mostly Medicare. It's not that much more than I generated with my seven lap coles, and I was out of the hospital by 4 o'clock. Right. Now, finally, let's consider the poor schmuck who's got to cover labor and delivery, right? That's, I've done labor and delivery. I love LB, but it's it can be stressful, and it can be taxing. You can be up there for 12 hours and not and only get 20 to 30 units total. So OB is not a very lucrative practice in general. There are some exceptions that where they they're like a mill where they just they're just cranking out tons and tons of cases, but that is really stressful. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about some unit variability and some things that we have no control over. So this can be very frustrating to you as an anesthesiologist. But you have to go into it with your eyes wide open and realize that there's a lot of these things we, we you can't control. So you can't control surgical duration. You have some surgeons that are faster or slower than others. You can't really control the type of cases you get. You can it, it depends on how your system is structured as to who gets to choose which rooms. There's a lot of private practices where the person who's on call gets to choose their room or there's a numerical sequence by which you choose rooms. The challenge is that you're on call, you're going to pick the one where you make the most money. It might not be the last finishing room. And right. if you're the last one to pick, you get a case that's scheduled to go all day, you're stuck. Um, you also can't control the fact that generally operating rooms tend to be empty in the middle of the day. So surgeons want to do their cases in the morning, then they go to their office. And then they get out of their office, and they come back, and they want to pick up some cases in the afternoon. So it's it's not common to find an operating room that's working all the way through uh, through the day. And if you do, you're in a very busy hospital. Okay. And again, we've talked briefly about OB, which is a real uh, a real challenge to make money at. So that kind of leads me to Stone Mets' tip number two. All right. And that is that... Every system will get gamed. <clears throat> it doesn't matter what system's put in place. There's going to be people who are going to figure it out and are going to game it. So you want to make sure that you're not going into a situation where you've been taken unduly advantage of by your savvy partners. You want to look for practices that rewards productivity if you want to work hard. If your priority <clears throat> is to be out by 5 o'clock every day so you can spend time with your kids, then productivity models may not be the best for you. But if you're hungry and you want to build that house and you want to generate some money, then you look for one, a practice that says, we're going to reward you for doing these big cases. We're going to reward you for working late. The other thing um, that you want to be look into deeply is, is does the group reimburse you for qualifying circumstances? So a lot of groups say, we're, only, we're going to pay you a blended unit rate, but we're only going to pay you for base plus time. <clears throat> So they don't pay you for the A-line you put in. They don't put you, pay you for that epidural you put in. That takes more time, makes more work for you. But it's not every group compensates you for that. So guess what? You tend not to do them. Mm-hmm. And so you know, those groups probably are not delivering the best level of care. I'm a big believer that for things like epidurals for post-op pain management, nerve blocks for pain management are really important. And if the group's not going to compensate you for those, then you got to question why you want to work for that group. Good point. So another tip, and that is location, location, location. Okay, so, and this is the example that I use. And I've actually had residents who have come back to me and said they've taken my formula and it's worked for them. So 
let's say one of our residents decides, you know what, I want to move back home and I want to move to Chicago. Okay. <clears throat> well, what you want to do is you want to look for the hospital that has the best payer mix. Because as we've alluded to before, you're going to put in your 40, 50, 60 hours a week. But if your payer mix is high, high government and low blended unit rate, you're going to make less money than the person who works in that good private practice hospital. Right. Um, the challenge is that there's frequently not a job available in that good private practice hospital. And it's also what's really important. I think one of the concepts you really need to understand is that it's very expensive for you career-wise to move. Right? So let's say you go to Chicago, but your spouse hates it, and she wants to move back home somewhere other, another part of the state or in another state altogether. You've been in practice in this group for three to five years. When you go to look for a job, you're going to be competing with residents who are coming out, and they're not going to pay you much more because you've got four or five years of experience. So you're going to start back to square one. Mm. So identify where you want to live first. And once you've identified where you want to live, start looking for where's a good place to get a job. Now, as we've, as we've indicated, lots of times those hospitals that you want to work at, there's no job. And these hospitals generally don't post for positions on gas work because they fill their job by word of mouth. So I recommend you identify what city, what place you want to live. If there's not a job in the hospital you want, go to work at an academic center in that city. Start befriending – People who work in those hospitals <clears throat> offer to cover some nights and weekends. Do some per diem work for them at that hospital. Get to know the partners. And if you're a good doc and you have a good personality, when a job opens, they'll pull you in. They never even advertise. So find where you want to live first. Remember that every occupation essentially becomes a job. So my recommendation to residents is to understand, look inside and define where your passion lies. If your passion is notoriety, power, or you want to make a difference, then an academic environment is a good place for you to go because it gives you a big platform, a big stage, and there's a lot of opportunity for you to do different things besides just pass gas. If, however, your passion is raising your kids, playing golf, sailing, nice house, then look at private practice because essentially it's a job. At the end of the day, it becomes a job and you make more money per hour in a private practice environment than you typically do in an academic environment. Now, does it, do, I've heard and, and certainly don't have much experience, but do you, have, do you want to factor in, for example, some private practices may not pay for your malpractice insurance or your health insurance and so that may, you may kind of make more but then some of it goes toward that. Is that an important thing to look at? Oh, of course. You have to look at the entire package. I'm going to get into contract negotiations in a minute. We're going to talk about some of those nuances. Great. Perfect. When you look at practices, there's essentially, there's three types of practices you want to look at. So first of all, <clears throat> there's a, there are all MD practices. Okay, So there's no CRNA, no team care. You're an anesthesiologist, and you're doing the case by yourself. <coughs> Those are appealing to a lot of anesthesiologists, but they are associated with lower income, and they have a potentially higher malpractice risk because, as one of the points we, one of the things we pointed out is that there's no one free to cover the PACU. Right. right. <coughs> and you'll, if you look at the distribution of groups around the country, you'll find that the all MD practices are pretty heavily populated just in major urban areas. So, like here around Baltimore, around New York, in the, in the West Coast, there's a lot of all MD practices. <coughs> my um, my assumption is that 
that's going to be that's going to go the way of the dodo bird. Mm-hmm. That it's not cost effective for all MD practices, and that will that'll change. That'll change a lot in the in the workforce. Uh, there's going to be less jobs available for an all MD practice. The other extreme is an all team care, so all CRNAs. That has a um, that has a, a couple. Uh, positives, but a couple downsides is that typically there's a high call percentage because there's few docs with lots of rooms. We don't typically let CRNAs take call by themselves, so we end up either on call or on call with some CRNAs. And you're doing a lot of H&Ps. You're basically doing a lot of pre-ops, and you're running around putting out fires. Now, um, and I've had physicians, when I was in private practice, it was an all-MD practice, and I had physicians who had worked in a team care, and they wanted to get out of that rat race. They wanted to come in and do their own cases. I will tell you personally <clears throat> that I am a big fan of the team care model. Um, I feel that I'm more effective going around putting out those fires than I am sitting in a long, boring case by myself. Right. And then the third type, which is the type that I recommend people try to find, is a hybrid model where you have – you have some CRNAs. They're doing your bread and butter cases. They typically use the MDs to do the sick patients or the cabbages or the big vascular cases. I think that has the, uh, the has the potential of having the best job satisfaction. There's days you're going to cover the PACU and you're going to do blocks, and there's other days you're going to do cases yourself. That typically has the highest income potential and it has a lower call percentage. So it's a group practice that, that I think you should try to, to look for. Okay. Um, tip number three is uh, is an important one. Uh, make sure you like your partners. Basically, a corporation is like a marriage, and divorce is always ugly. Right? And the, so the worst investment you'll ever make is to choose the wrong spouse or to choose the wrong partners. Yep. Uh, once you leave a practice, if you just can't tolerate working with them, again, you're going to start out square one, and it's, it, it'll cost you a lot in terms of money and career. So I want to talk about um, contract negotiation. So you've decided now uh, that you know where you want to live. You've identified the hospital that has the best payer mix, has the highest blended unit rate. You've liked the partners. Uh, everything looks good. So what do you, now you're faced with looking at a contract. Now the contract, essentially, uh, the, the biggest tip that I want to tell you, if you're in a residency program, and you're looking for a job, do not hire an attorney to review your contract. I was the president of my group. <clears throat> I hired, uh, in the course of my private practice, I hired 18 anesthesiologists who joined our group over span of, of several years. We put a lot of money into creating a contract. We are not going to change that contract for you. Right. What we will change is the appendix or the attachment. In that attachment are things where we talk about how much vacation you get, what's your compensation, are we going to pay you for overtime, after hours work. Those types of things are in the attachment, and we'll negotiate those. We'll change those. Mm -hmm. You can negotiate that with your group. You don't need an attorney to help you. If you get an attorney, an attorney is going to find something they're going to tell you you need to change because that's what they do, right? They look at it and say, oh, I wouldn't sign this. I can tell you I'm not changing. I've hired six people before you. I'm not changing my contract for you. Right. So you're wasting your time and money getting an attorney to negotiate your first contract. It's a big difference when you go to negotiate your partnership. If you get into a practice and they say, you work for us for three years, at the end of three years you can become a partner. Now I get an attorney. 
and an accountant to look at that contract because that's worth that's worth looking at and that's worth potentially making some changes. <clears throat> but for those for you, those residents who are going out into private practice out of an academic program, don't hire an attorney. When you go to look at uh, the, the attachment, there's a couple things that you really want to pay attention to. <clears throat> the first is that most every contract is going to have a non-compete. The non-compete has to be fair, right? And and you can determine what's fair, but the bottom line is that <clears throat> non-compete shouldn't force you to sell your house and move. They're, what they're typically trying to prevent is they're trying to prevent you from coming in befriending the orthopedic surgeons and then going with the orthopedic surgeons when they build their standalone surgery center. That group wants to be able to negotiate for coverage of that. And if you're if you're moving off to work for the for the surgeons, you're hurting this business. That's the reason we have these non-competes. Right. <clears throat> the second thing is that you want them to pay for your malpractice tale. And I'll explain why. So malpractice comes in two flavors. It's occurrence or claims-based. I think they call it claims-made. <clears throat> so one, and I keep getting them mixed up. I have to reference every time I look at it. But you, you, can, you can Google this and figure it out. One says, <clears throat> I'm going to pay your malpractice this year, and it covers you against any claim made against you this year, okay. filed against you this year. The other one says, I'm going to pay your malpractice this year, and I will cover you against any claim that occurred during your practice. So let's typically a malpractice do, a claim doesn't come in for four to five years. Right. I mean, it's not common for it to be under two to three years. <clears throat> so in the, in the type where they pay for the year you practice, your first one to two years, your, your malpractice rate is going to be very low. You're, it's really unheard of that somebody's going to get sued even in the first year of their practice. It may wait to two or three years. <clears throat> so consequently, let's say you are going to leave. You need a tail. So you leave the practice. You've been there five years. You go somewhere else. <clears throat> you need a malpractice claim that says you're gone, but someone's suing you because of what you did five years ago. So that tail covers it. <clears throat> if you're an employee and you're on a salary and you're working for the group, you want to make sure they cover your tail. <clears throat> because the malpractice should be part of the benefits they pay you. If they're not going to pay you any benefits, and there's, there's, there's practices like that, that means they're treating you almost like a 1099 with no benefits. So no malpractice, no health, no nothing. <clears throat> you need to make a lot more money than a salary. Right. So you have to add those up. And your malpractice... It's, it depends a little bit on where you practice. If you practice here in Baltimore, it's different than if you practice in the end of the, outside the, at the end of the state, up in Cumberland, for example. But in general, when you get into your fifth year of practice, you're looking at anywhere from twelve to twenty thousand dollars a year, just for malpractice. If you've been in practice for five years or more, that tail could be as high as several, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars. I mean, it could be a lot of money depending on where you're at. <clears throat> if you're an employee, you want to make sure that if you get, if you leave for any reason, whether you don't like it or they don't like you, that they're going to cover your tail. Right, and that's that's a reasonable thing for a group to do. And how long does that tail last? Is it an, any uh, when you get to it at any point for? Yeah, a, the tail is the ins the insurance company says based on how many years you've been in practice. This is what we're going to cost your tail, and it lasts really, uh, you know, as long as you're alive. Okay, you know, so as long 20 as your years, state's around. 
Right. 20 years from now, I get sued for something I did when I was at this practice. I'm still covered. Correct. And in fact, the uh, the statute of limitations for OB, I think, is like 22 years. So it's possible if you have an OB practice, you could get sued 22 years after you did a case. Wow. So that's why they that's why you need a tail. Now, conversely, if you're a partner, partnerships is where you start seeing things like tail comes out of my my compensation. And the reason we do that is because if I'm a partner, I get compensated based on the work that I do. And if I retire, <clears throat> they still haven't collected money from cases that I did right up to the day I retired. So during that retirement, <clears throat> I get my accounts payable. Right? That's money that's coming in against bills we've sent out for work I did, but I haven't been paid yet. And that accounts payable is frequently paid over the course of 12 months. So it's not a stress to the to the group. I will then typically pay for my own tail out of my accounts payable. And that's an appropriate structure for a partnership program, but it's not an appropriate structure for the young employee who's coming out of residency looking for a job. All right. Well, that seems like a really important thing to keep in mind. Um, all right. So anything else, uh, Jerry, any other tips for uh, contract negotiations? No, I think that's uh, – like I said, I, I just – I think the key is not to hire an attorney – um, and just use common sense about what to look for in a contract. You know, are you are you making about the same as as a partner, or is how much is the penalty for being non-partner? <clears throat> and a lot of residents ask me. They're starting to see now. I think medicine. There, there's some trends that I'm gonna I'm gonna segue into. But one of the trends we're seeing is that some of the larger groups, particularly in Manhattan, we're seeing this where. Groups are not offering partnership. But what they do is they say, after three years, we'll make you, we'll give you financial parity. All right? So you're making the same amount of money as I am. I'm a partner. You're not, you're not a partner, but you're not, I'm not living off of you. Okay. <clears throat> there's, there's certain disadvantages to being a partner, but if they're paying you financial parity, that's not a bad place to be. Uh, it means you don't get a say in, in what the corporation does, but as long as you're making the same amount of money, it's actually not a bad place to be. Okay. And are there are these all one-year contracts, multi-year contracts? Does it depend? So most of them are one-year contracts with three years to partnership, two to three years to partnership. There's – depending on, on how desperate the group is, they may offer a partnership right out of, out of the box, but that's uncommon. So it's usually at least one year to partnership. They want to get to know you. They want to know if you're – are you a uh, the right mix for us? Okay, and then partnership gives you some more job security as well. Correct. They can't if you're a partner. It, it's really tough to get rid of you. Okay. So you mentioned some uh, kind of industry trends. What are you seeing happening uh, or potentially happening in the future that you think people should know about? Well, I think the first trend um, is that we're seeing a lot more demand for anesthesia services out of the operating room. We refer to that as Nora, non-operating room anesthesia. So mm-hmm. endo suites. Uh, certainly interventional radiology areas, <clears throat> and that's creating, uh, in addition to the non-operating room anesthesia, we also are seeing a, an explosion in ambulatory surgery centers. So those two combinations are providing opportunities for anesthesiologists that are not typical. They're not standard. Okay. Um, there's a lot of open positions. If you go to gas work, there's a lot of open positions for both anesthesiologists and CRNAs, <clears throat> and there's a lot of them that are looking for coverage in these surgery centers. Um, The second trend that we've noticed is that, and we think this is going to continue, 
that there's an increase in number of mid-levels that are being uh, trained and may, may, being made available. We have <clears throat> currently in the United States about 40,000 physicians, and we have about 40,000 mid-level providers. We think those numbers are going to change dramatically over the next few years. A 2010 RAND Corporation predicts there's going to be a shortage of almost 5,000 physicians and a surplus of almost 8,000 CRNAs by 2020. Wow. <clears throat> and so how's that going to play out? There are just going to be more practices that are a, a team model instead of I MDL. think so, yes. I believe so. And I think you're going to find that these hospitals that are all MDs, they're going to really struggle to backfill. So they're going to almost be forced to hire mid-level providers. Right. <clears throat> and if the if the tea leaves are correct and the compensation level begins to shrink or drop for physicians because we go to a single payer or whatever – I think you're going to see less people going into anesthesia. You're going to see more mid-level providers as, re- as a result. Okay. There's another uh, thing on the horizon that I want to at least alert you to. Um, it's, it's, it's been talked about in the, as the air traffic controller model. So it says that as an anesthesiologist, we should consider – an environment where we function more like an air traffic controller, not necessarily the pilot of the plane, but the air traffic controller. <clears throat> we set it at a bank of monitors and we, we identify trends and we go and we work on, we, we go to, to that fire that's starting to break mm-hmm. out. <clears throat> now there's been talk about it, but there hasn't been much done with it because we're hampered by compliance rules from Medicare. Um, one of the things that Medicare says is that you can only cover up the four rooms, for example. Uh, whether you have residents, a combination of residents, or CRNAs. Medicare looks at it differently than the ACGME does. ACGME is more focused on the educational element, but Medicare says, I don't care who's in that room, you can only cover four of these rooms. Right. Now, <clears throat> there is a billing modifier res- referred to as QZ. QZ says, I'm the physician in charge of this case, but I'm not I'm not going to try to be there for all the elements of the case, so I'm not going to bill my time. I'm only going to bill for the nurse's time, the CRNA's time. There's a company called Talus that has taken this to the nth degree. They actually have an they they ta- tap into the electronic record for the anesthesia. They tap into all the monitors. They have decision support systems, and there's groups right now. I talked to a group, uh, an anesthesiologist who's at one of these groups outside of in somewhere in, in Ohio. <clears throat> they have 48 operating rooms. They have three physicians. Wow. And the rest are staffed by CRNAs. And he says we do a, we have a, you know great product, great job, and this software allows us to do that. So 16 rooms per MD. <clears throat> Imagine the impact on our workforce if that were to become pervasive. Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, again, hard to figure out where it's going to go, but certain trends uh, that we're seeing, technology is going to have an impact on, on manpower. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, trend. Another trend that we're seeing is that we have more and more anesthesiologists that are working less than full-time. There's been... There's been a significant increase in the number of, of physicians who are now female, trained as anesthesiologists, <clears throat> and a large number of those are deciding that they want to have a family. They don't want to work 60 hours a week. They really want to work 30 to 36. They want a, they want a predictable, reliable time to leave the hospital. Yeah. 
And so that's that's actually impacting the kinds of jobs that are out there. <clears throat> uh, 2011 studies showed that um, – 22% of men and 44% of women now work part-time. That's in anesthesia. In anesthesia. Okay. And the two fastest-growing demographics are men at the end of their career, like myself, mm-hmm. and women at the beginning of their career. So it's, it's having an impact on, on manpower. I can tell you when I was running a private practice group, I first started dealing with this with we were looking for people to join the practice. We were interviewing women, and we had women say – you know, I really like the practice. I want to work here, but I need to leave by 4:30 every day. Right. Well, that's challenging. You know, it's very challenging unless you unless you somehow build in a program <clears throat> that, you know, they're not overly penalized, but other people are rewarded for stepping in and relieving relieving them to go. Right. Another trend that we we see and we think is probably going to continue is that there's more and more uh um well, I, there's more and more employment of physicians by hospitals, <clears throat> and the hospital employment gives you some um, protections that you don't get in a private practice group. That they generally get a lower salary, and they have incentives to meet performance and quality metrics. There's currently uh, a Rand uh, Price Waterhouse study showed that 46% of anesthesiologists are interested in employment by the hospital. <clears throat> And if you look at it, currently over 80% of anesthesia groups already have subsidization of their practice by the hospital. So it's not that hard to imagine the conversion to them becoming employed by the hospital. But we do caution, you have to be careful of, of something called the company model. The company model is what we saw being deployed at endoscopy centers, in particular in some surgery centers, where the endoscopy center would say, we're going to hire you, we're going to pay you $250,000 a year <clears throat> to do anesthesia, and then they took your collections and billed for you. Mm. That is the company model that the ASA has come out against, and they're, they're fighting it. Um, it's not terribly different than just being an employee. Right. Uh, but it's, uh, so there is some nuances to that. <clears throat> um <clears throat> Another thing that we get we're concerned about is that you know healthcare reform is changing priorities in our practices. There's new federal regulations coming out every day. There's new uh, new pressure on quality performance, quality metrics. It's relatively impossible for these groups, small groups, to do this. They don't have the technology to do it, and that's driving a lot of these groups towards consolidation. <clears throat> we also see uh, trends for new subspecialists. Ultrasound guided blocks are huge. If you want to work, if you're looking to get a job in one of these really good hospitals, you probably need some expertise that's unique. So you can do ultrasound guided regional blocks. You can do TEE for cardiac. Maybe you have some knowledge in pain management and in knowledge of informatics. Um, these practices are now, almost all of them have to go electronic. <clears throat> they're, they're doing quality capture, quality metrics. Now that's being factored into payment. And most of the practice uh, physicians have very little knowledge of how to work these these tools. So if you gain some knowledge about it, I think it actually adds to your your skill set when you go to look for a job. That makes sense. Um, the other thing, I think the, the trend that I want to leave you with is the, the last trend, and it's similar to the one where we see hospitals are employing. We're seeing that anesthesia groups, it's a culmination of these other trends building up, but we're seeing anesthesia groups are consolidating 
and they're growing in size and location. <clears throat> we currently have over three anesthesia corporations that are publicly traded. There are over 15 groups that have more than 500 physicians in their group, and they work in more, more than three states. Uh, there's been, there was a drive of private equity firms buying out these, these, private, these good private practice groups. We've, almost, we've actually reached almost the end of that. They've pretty much bought out all the really good private practice groups around the country. <clears throat> and now we're seeing a little bit of a backlash in that what they did is they came in and they offered partners a significant multiple. So if you were making $400,000 a year and they paid you a, a three times multiple, they give you like a $1.2 million payout. Said okay, and they got my shares. And they said okay, but now you're going to work for us, and we're going to pay you three hundred thousand a year. Right. Well, that was fine for the first two to three years, but now I've burnt through my one point two million, and now I'm like, wait a minute, I was making four hundred. Why am I only making three hundred? Right. So we're starting to see now um, some backlash against these larger corporations, but I think that the the horse is out of the barn. Yeah. You know, I think they we're we're seeing salaries coming down. Uh, more of a cap being established, <clears throat> and I don't see the I don't see salaries going up. I see them staying the same or going down over the over the future. So that's that's pretty much the summation of my uh, synopsis of of career uh, decisions, and and hopefully we've given you some some background to make uh, make a decision. If you decide you want to go into private practice, here's here's some things you should think about. If you decide you want to stay in academics. You still have to be concerned about salary and and how much work do you do, but I but there's they're more standardized. They don't vary so much from place to place. Private practice can be all over the all over the board. Yeah, well, this is really helpful to try to kind of get some of that in mind. Um, let me ask you a couple of questions that came up. So, locum tenens. Uh, my understanding of that is kind of maybe someone goes on a maternity leave in a group and they need someone to fill in for a few months. And then these uh, locum tenens companies look for physicians who are willing to kind of step in, and you can do that work. Is that uh, becoming more common? Um, I wouldn't say it's more common, but it certainly is common. Uh, there are physicians. I, I think that the thing that limits locum tenens is that <clears throat> there's not a lot of physicians that really want to do that work all the time. Maybe you're going through a life change and you want to do it for a period of time. It gives you the ability to travel and see different places. Unfortunately, a lot of the places that need locum tenens is somewhere that I don't necessarily want to go visit. You right. know, it could be in, you know, Alabama. Right. <clears throat> I'm not sure I really want to go there. Right. So it's hard to find enough physicians to to do the locum tenens work. Now, typically, what'll happen is they'll pay you a lot more to do locum tenens because they, if they was if they could if they could hire someone and pay you what they're paying. Like the perfect example is the person goes on maternity leave, or let's say I end up having an automobile accident and I'm, I'm disabled for three months. <clears throat> if they could pay someone my salary just to plug me in, that would be great, but they can't. So they have to pay more typically for the locums. Right. So it becomes an, an inducement for the physician who – it gives them a chance to make more money if they're willing to go places that are not so great or, or do some things that are not so great. Uh, I think we're um, – I don't know that we're going to see an increase in that trend, but we're definitely – I don't think it's going to go away. Actually, what we're seeing uh, almost is like your own – as the groups get larger, they almost have their own locums within the group. So they have people that are pretty much 
they go to wherever they need them to go. So these these corporations with 500 physicians, they have physicians in that group who just go to different hospitals within their coverage to area. To fill in where needed. Yep. Okay. And then do you see an expansion of this idea of kind of the perioperative surgical home uh, and specifically a role for anesthesiologists? Are, are we going to start doing more preoperative and postoperative care, maybe even extending into a preop clinic or a postop clinic? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. I would hope so. Like, as you know, one of my roles here is I run our pre-op clinic, and I, I, I don't want to use the term surgical home because I think that kind of fell out of favor, but we do see value in anesthesiologists being in charge or overseeing this. It's, it's, a, it's difficult to get compensated to the same level you do doing anesthesia. Right. So private practice groups struggle with this. For them to sit a physician in a in a clinic, that physician is not going to generate near the revenue they do if they're sitting a stool and doing anesthesia. But I think what you're going to see is remember we talked about the uh, the salary based model, the time based compensation model. <clears throat> the groups uh, who have contracts with hospitals are going to be asked to provide more and more services, and some of the services we're going to have to provide is this pre op uh, management and post op management. And, yeah, you're not going to make the same amount of money you do in the, doing the anesthesia, but it's going to be part of the service the hospital is going to ask you for. So I do think it's going to be an important component of what we provide. I don't see it generating more revenue. I think it's going to dilute our revenue. Mm. But I think that if you don't provide these services, you're at risk of being replaced by a group that will. Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, Jerry, anything else to say before we sign off? No, uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to give this talk. It's uh, allows me hopefully i know that it'll it'll uh it'll last even after i've retired and you can still give it to future residents absolutely and i hope you don't retire too soon thanks so much for coming on the show all right that was really interesting stuff i learned a ton hopefully that was really useful for folks out there either who are thinking about private practice or maybe are in private practice and trying to figure out how things are looking on their end so really interesting Thanks to Dr. Stomess for coming. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Leave a comment. Let people know what you're thinking, maybe what your experience has been in private practice or any tips and advice you may have for people currently thinking about it. And if you haven't already, or even if you have, but not for a little while, consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC, where you can leave a donation as well. Thank you so much to all those who already have become patrons or left donations. And, of course, a big shout-out and thank you to Brian Park for the outlines he does for some of the shows they're really helpful if you are using these to study all right that is it for today thanks so much for listening for the ACRAC podcast and dr jerry stonemetz i'm jed wolpaw remember what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.